It is a great joy to be back at Falls and to be in the pulpit again. I was thinking about, uh, on the way up here, one of the heroes that I have. Uh, I heard him preach one of his final few messages, Dr. Ernest Pickering, uh, from this pulpit at a Baptist World Board meeting many years ago. He had contracted a brain tumor. He was soon to go home to heaven. And he stood in this pulpit, though actually a different one than this lectern, but his wife was sitting down on the second row and he was blind and he would, he would memorize his messages and preach them fervently and then he would stop and say, now, now honey, what's the next word? And she would give him the next word from the script and he would preach. So this place has been a place where giants have stood and this ministry stands on the shoulders of giants. I do think of Dr. Van Gelderen's father who was one of my heroes and also was a very, very close and dear friend of my father-in-law who was one of my heroes. Uh, Dad Bauman pastored, planted and pastored Grace Baptist Church in Farmington, New Mexico for 32 years and was a giant for the Lord. And so it's such a blessing to be here. We have so many friends here. We have a number of our BWM missionary families here. And it is a thrill to be back with you. Now, I don't know who was the person who made the lovely basket that showed up in my motel room. Uh, that is so gracious, and I compliment you. But I saw the fingerprints of one person in particular. Brother Jim, that's you. I want to thank you because one of the key things in my basket was a Starbucks gift card. So thank you, my friend. You know, it's a joy that... that uh, Falls Baptist Church can be big enough to support a liberal entity on the West Coast. So thank you so much. That is a joy. It, it really is a special blessing for me today to have two people here that I'd like to introduce to you. Uh, first of all, Dr. Ben Sinclair. I'll ask him to stand up. He's over here on my right. Uh, Dr. Sinclair is a BWM missionary for over 20 years in Cameroon, West Africa and was recently appointed as the next executive director of Baptist World Mission. And so April 1st, he'll be beginning in that role, and what a joy to have him here and for us to teammate together on this role. About three years ago, uh, God began to burden my heart to listen to the counsel of another one of my heroes, Dr. Fred Moritz. I had served on the board as a pastor for many years, and Dr. Moritz was the executive director, and then when he retired, he stepped aside and I became the next executive director uh, as the board uh, asked us to come from pastoral ministry and do that. And that was, that was a real challenge for us to, to move out of pastoring into that role, but God was in it. And it's been a wonderful time. But Dr. Moritz said, when you get close to 70, you need to start thinking about the next generation. Now, by God's grace, my wife and I both enjoy good health. We love the ministry. And I, I just want to make sure that you understand there is no retirement in the transition with the Stedmans. If you say that, I'll exhort you to wash your mouth out with soap. Uh, but I did take seriously Dr. Moritz's exhortation that we needed to prepare for generational transition. So about three years ago, I began to pray, and the Lord put on my heart a vision of what He would have us to do. I shared it about two years ago with my wife, and she was very much on board. And a year and a half ago, I notified the board uh, of what our plans would be. And the goal, and the board approved that, and I thank them so much for that. Two of my bosses, by the way, our, our board is made up of 32 pastors, and two of them are sitting right up front here, Pastor 
Uh, Zimple is one of those, and of course, Pastor Van Gelderen, and 30 other bosses that I have. They approved a new role that we're going to be entering into on April 1st. It's called Missions Mentor. And we're going to be full-time on the road for Baptist World. We're going to continue the conferences, the preaching, the recruiting uh, under Brother Sinclair's direction as my immediate boss uh, when he becomes executive director. We'll also be visiting the missionaries overseas and, and doing a lot of things for Baptist World. It will be a faith ministry, uh, much like if you can think of an evangelist who goes around promoting missions. That's kind of what we're going to be doing. And we've been doing much of that for 14 years. And so we're very excited about it. But one of the perks of this is that because we're giving up the administrative side, we can live anywhere God wants us to live. And God has made it clear that we're going to go to Columbia, South Carolina and be near three of our grandchildren. Uh, and we have three grandchildren in Colorado. Uh, and so we're going to use some of the time that God gives us when we're not on the road mentoring the grandkids. So we're very excited about that role. So you pray for us at Baptist World as we make this transition. Uh, we're excited. Uh, I've got a really great schedule this year and next year is beginning to fill up. So we're excited about continuing to preach and to minister for the Lord in this role. And pray for the Sinclairs as they've come back from Cameroon. Uh, they're making their home there in Decatur and uh, as they go forward. Baptist World has just under 300 adult missionaries serving in 51 countries around the world. But you, know, you say, that's, that's great. But folks, according to the UN, which I don't often quote, there are 195 countries on this planet. And Baptist World is only in 51 of those. Now, there are other good agencies, we understand. But folks, the Lord of the harvest needs to be sought for the needs of the world around us. And we pray to him. So, so I'm so glad to have Brother Sinclair here. And then I'm glad to have my son Nathan down here, right here. If you would stand, please. This is my uh, son. You'll be hearing a little bit about him toward the end of the message by way of testimony. But he surprised me. Uh, he was here with me. We were at a conference together here in 1998. He was about a, uh, a ninth grader at the time, and we came for one of the conferences, and uh, it was such a blessing. And to have him back here for this, he is an assistant pastor in Denver, Colorado with Brother Will Sin, and so he flew in and surprised me, and thank you for doing that. What a joy to have him here today. Now, let's take our Bibles, if you would, please, and go to Psalm 90. I want to introduce... The topic this morning, and I appreciate so very much Dr. Van Gelderen giving me plenty of time. I told him before the service years ago, the first time I preached at Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina, for another of our classmates, Dr. Mark Minnick, I told the folks, I said, you know, the, the length of message that I preach is halfway between a Savinsky and a minic, okay? So if you know those men, you know what I'm talking about. Well, that's kind of what I normally do, but I may have to change that this morning and say that what I'm going to preach is kind of halfway between a Savinsky and a Van Gelderen now after the, the services we've enjoyed uh, where we've had some great uh, messages. But the reality is that you will notice in your notes that all of the sermons have had references to uh, men that are quoted and appreciated for the comments that have been added to your notes. Uh, I have a few of those, but I want to give credit to two men this morning. And this is a little bit maybe of a commercial to pastors for the importance of, of having good books and, and learning from men who've gone before us in the past, even if they're not necessarily from our exact camp in fundamentalism, but to learn from them. 
The message this morning, which I've entitled, Go Forward in the Desert Sands, is actually the result of a number of things that I've studied, but two primarily that the Lord used to speak to my heart about this passage a number of years ago. One of them is an evangelist who's now with the Lord named Stephen Olford. If you're not familiar with Stephen Olford, he has a wonderful collection of expository sermons that are a great help to pastors. He's written a number of books. He was a very, very conservative Southern Baptist who had many of the fundamental positions at heart and took a lot of good stands within the convention. Now, I would not agree with staying into the convention, but, but Stephen Olford was a blessing to me and has been and continues to be. I remember I was at Wheaton College uh, visiting, I didn't go there, and uh, I went to the bookstore and I was wanting to find some books and I was looking for some of the books that Olford had written that were really not published or known. I think I've got everything that he ever wrote. Uh, but anyway, I came across a book in the Wheaton Library, uh, and I don't even remember the title. I should have looked it up, but, but it, was, it was out of print, and it was a book on the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. And his whole point in the book was, go forward with God. And I read that and it stirred my heart. And so I preached a series at Community Baptist in South Bend on the importance of going forward with God. And so I want to talk about that today as well. And then the second man is a man that became a personal friend of mine. His name is John Phillips. John Phillips is with the Lord. He wrote a series of books, uh, the Exploring Series. And Dr. Stuart Custard at Bob Jones University said that John Phillips' book, uh, two volumes on the Psalms, are the greatest things written on the Psalms. So you should and must get Phillips' writings as a pastor to be a help and a blessing to you. John Phillips was a Plymouth Brethren. Uh, he was in that movement and went to a church in Raleigh, North Carolina called Faith Fellowship. I always got tickled at Faith Fellowship. They didn't have a pastor because Plymouth Brethren don't have a pastor. But they had one guy who was among their elders who did all the preaching, who got paid for full-time ministry, did all the hospital visitation, but they didn't have a pastor, you understand. And I remember chiding Brother Phillips a little bit about that. But Brother Phillips lived up the road from where I pastored in Raleigh, North Carolina at the time. And I would go by his house and his wife would sell me his books at a discount. And that was really nice. And uh, he and I sat together at a funeral of a, a, a mutual friend and, and uh, became to some degree a friend, though he did not move in the circles that I moved in. He was rather new evangelical, but had a wonderful gift in writing. Uh, it's interesting, when John Phillips retired from the ministry and moved to uh, near Ramsour, North Carolina, he joined an independent Baptist church. So at the end of his life, he had become an independent Baptist, which uh, was really wonderful. So I, I mentioned these two men because uh, we need to be studying God's Word, but we also need to be using the tools, especially when men have been proven to be orthodox and sound. So let me encourage you, uh, if, if, uh, if you get nothing else from my message this morning, uh, to add Stephen Olford and John Phillips to your library editions as a pastor, they will be a great blessing, especially if you believe and hold to an expository preaching method. So Psalm 90, we're going to begin looking at this. Let's read the entire psalm and then we will pray. You'll notice the subscript, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. 
Before the worlds were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and saith, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood, they are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up, in the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away, and thy wrath we spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away." Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and it, let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Let's pray as we open God's wonderful word. Father, I pray this morning as we marvel at what you have done in putting together the emphases of these messages. Lord, how you've knit it together in our hearts and minds. And Lord, even the children singing this morning is a visible testimony to your sovereignty in ordaining the messages for this week. So Father, we believe that you want to meet with us in this hour because you have ordained this hour. And we pray that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, would speak to our hearts that we might go forward in the desert sands. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. About 4,000 years ago, an 80-year-old man faced a seemingly impossible situation. That was going forward with God into the desert sands of the Middle East. You know the story, and we've actually heard yesterday morning Pastor Wayne preached uh, probably uh, the most wonderful setup for this text that we could have seen from what Moses endured when the children of Israel at Sinai made the golden calf. You know the story how Moses led the children under the obedience to God out of the land of Egypt. They came across the Red Sea. They came to Sinai and God gave them the law and the children of Israel rebelled against the Lord. They made a golden calf. Even the spiritual leader of the people, Aaron, was seduced, as we heard yesterday morning, to go astray. And God was so angry with him that Moses had to intercede for the sparing of Aaron's life. So the children of Israel have proven already that they're a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. And they leave from Sinai and they make their way eventually to the border, after a few months, to the border of the land of promise to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And there at Kadesh Barnea, they send out 12 spies into the land, and those spies go and they come back, 
and they're bearing the grapes of Eskel and, and all the wonderful things, and they talk about the glories of the land. But ten of the, tri- uh, ten of the spies said, we're but grasshoppers in their sights, and they're huge walled cities, and we cannot defeat them. So they rebelled against God in unbelief. Only two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, believed God. And so because of that, God came to Moses and said, every man and woman over the age of 20 is going to die in the wilderness for 40 years. You're going to wander. It seemed to them somewhat pointless. God was leading. But it was a wandering of judgment in the sands of Sinai, in those desert sands. And for 40 years, Moses was going to lead a dying people. Now, folks, the Bible tells us there were 603,000, not counting the tribe of Levi, men of war. And in the time of the Bible that we're speaking of, it was common for a man who was to be a man of war to be married. So we are probably talking about upwards of 1.2 million people who are, have fallen under the judgment of God because of unbelief who are daily going to be walking in the sands of Sinai and they're going to be dying. What that means is Moses for 40 years is going to have 100 funerals every day. So how would you like your ministry looking to the next 40 years to be a ministry of leading a people who are known to rebel against God and you're going to oversee their death and you're going to have a hundred funerals every day for 40 years. Moses had every human reason to despair as he faced the metaphorical desert sands of unbelief. And I see a real parallel to what we are facing as fundamentalists in our world today. Folks, we have the desert sands of COVID. And of course, isn't it interesting, just this last week, uh, one of the government agencies brought out that it probably did come from the lab in Wuhan, and the Republicans are up in arms because they were criticized by those who, who said that that wasn't the case. So when's the next virus going to come out of the next Chinese lab? When will there be war with China and with Russia? We already have missionaries involved in the war in Ukraine as far as supporting some of the people there. Some of our missionaries are facilitating the horrible effects of that war. Folks, we're facing desert sands. But what about the corruption of our land, the corruption of our families, the corruptions of all the God-ordained institutions, whether it is the compromise of American churches or the breakdown of American families with transgenderism and all of the perversion that's taking place in our ministries in the future, it would be easy for us to come together and say, woe are we because we're facing the desert sands. And we really are facing the desert sands. So what we find in this passage is a message from Moses given by the Holy Spirit concerning how to face the future in the presence of the difficulties of life. Now notice the subscript of the psalm, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Did you know there are only eight times in the Bible where men are called a man of God by name? 
Those men are Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, Shemaiah, Igdaliah, and Timothy. Only eight are called by name a man of God. Now we do have other men of God, the, the prophet to, to, uh, that, that went up to cry against the altar at Bethel was a man of God out of Judah, but we don't know his name. But they were men of God. But what this tells us is that it's possible, as you know the stories of those eight men and others who are unnamed but called men of God, men of God and women of God can have trials and heartaches and testings. We heard about it from Brother Zimple in the previous hour. So just because you are God's servant, you are a follower of the Lamb, does not exempt you from the desert sands and the difficulties and the burdens of ministering to a people who at times are rebellious and going up to a hundred funerals a day for 40 years. You're not exempted because you're a man of God. And we must think biblically. So we see the story of Moses as he goes forward. Now what we're going to do in the next few minutes is uh, break down this passage. And I want you to see two things. According to Moses... If you and I would go forward in the desert sands, we need a right perspective, a right perspective and a renewed power. And it comes by faith and it results in a biblical confidence for God in the days ahead. So, first of all, notice to go forward by faith, we need a right perspective. The world tells us that man is a product of his circumstances. A good environment or good circumstances, a good man. A bad environment or bad circumstances, a bad man. Now we would reject that from a sociological standpoint. We know that you can put wicked people in a new housing development and and the housing development doesn't make them good people. They make the housing development a slum. We understand that. But folks, sometimes it's easy for us to think that We will be good Christians if we have good circumstances. And that is never the case. We are to be good Christians because we know our good God. And so the Bible tells us that what we are is directly related to our relationship to God. Therefore, we need a right perspective on ourselves and on God as we understand what that relationship is all about. And isn't it wonderful how we've been hearing that every service so far? So we're going to look at this passage. I'm going to take some liberty here, and I'm going to begin in verse 5. The first four verses, Moses gives us a perspective on God. And then he begins in verse 5 to give us a perspective on man. But I think for what we're doing this morning, it'll help us to reverse the order, at least in our study. And uh, first of all, I want you to see a right perspective on our insufficiency. And that's verses 5 through 11. Moses begins by talking about God, but he quickly goes to our insufficiency. And folks, if we ever forget that we are not sufficient for the desert sands, we will be the victim of the desert sands. We've got to understand that. So what do we learn from Moses? Well, in verses 7 and 8, we learn that our lives are sinful. He says, For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Most Bible scholars agree that Moses wrote this 
as the second oldest portion of Scripture. Job is probably the oldest book, the first one written. But this one was written apparently before Moses wrote the five books that we know so well. And he wrote it apparently after Kadesh Barnea. So he comes and he says, God, you know, God, that our lives are sinful. Our sin is before your face. Folks, did you know every sin you commit is before the face of God? One theologian said, guard well thy thoughts, for thy thoughts are heard in heaven. And they are. So every sin is not a secret sin, but it is a well-known sin to God. So we must ever live in an awareness that God sees us. But how easy it is for Christians, and even in our movement, to put on a front, uh, that face, that facade that we saw, or to somehow follow the, the myth of the perfect Christian family. You know, in fundamentalism, there is a myth of the perfect Christian family, you know, we come to church and we're all dressed up very nice and all the little kiddos come in and they sit down and people look at them and say, what a wonderful, wonderful Christian family. And they didn't hear the conversations in the car coming to church. There is a myth of the perfect Christian family, folks. We are a broken people and our lives are sinful. That's what Moses is saying. I mean, he's just experienced the rebellion of over a million point two people. So our lives are sinful. Now, I went a number of years ago from uh, South Bend, Indiana to Alabama, and Alabama has a very high view of its football team. And a lot of those guys wear big letter A's on their shirts and things. So I had a lot of fun when I went to Alabama. By the way, I'm a Tennessee fan. I grew up in Tennessee. Amen. A amen. We get an amen over here. Can I? That's right. I, I grew up, so I'm, I'm a volunteer fan. So I would, I'd go to my, I would go to my new friend's there at uh, Calvary Baptist in Huntsville, and they would have on the big A. And I would say, now, what does that A represent? Is that from Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter? <laughs> now, I had to be careful about doing that. But you know that story, don't you? The story of Nathaniel Hawthorne and, and New England Puritanism and all of its hypocrisy. In the story, there is a preacher by the name of the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale. And the Reverend Dimsdale is a bachelor, and when he comes around, all the girls' hearts flutter because he is the picture of virtue and holiness, and all the girls want to be the bride of the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale. So he's one of the main characters. In the story also is a woman named Hester Prynne who has a little child out of wedlock. And so they, they labeled her with the scarlet A of the adulteress. So when people saw the Reverend Dimsdale, they would rejoice in his purity. And when they saw the scarlet letter, they would reject the harlot. But in the end of the story, finally, Arthur Dimsdale, when Hester is before the people in ridicule, he finally steps forward and admits that he is the father of the illegitimate child. Folks, God knew that all along. God sees everything about us. And this concept of a, a social construct of, of the myth of the perfect Christian family or the perfect church does not please God because God knows our secret sins and our insufficiency. So what if someone were today to know every sin in your life 
and they stood up in this congregation, and I don't recommend doing this, but they gave an expose, would you not be ashamed? And yet, folks, a holy God does know everything about us, and we too often are not ashamed of our sin. Moses talks about the fact that our lives are sinful. And then in verses 5 and 6, he points out that not only are our lives sinful, but God's chastening is severe. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. There is going to be a judgment for 40 years where God, taking his divine scythe of judgment, will cut the grass of Israel and the people will die in the wilderness. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to forget that God's judgment is swift and it is sure, even in the lives of Christians. Now, we need to be careful. We, we always remember that God loves us and He's willing to forgive us. But you study the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and when a believer sets his face against God in rebellion, God will deal with him in chastening. And sometimes we think it's very slow in coming, but in reality it is very rapid. It's kind of like watching a plane on the radar screen at the airport control tower. That little blip seems to be moving very slowly. But in fact, that plane is blazing across the sky. And folks, God's judgment will come. It may take 40 years for some of these people to die. But God's judgment is sure upon sin when we are what the, the psalmist called when we are froward, when we are proud and arrogant and we don't recognize our own sinfulness and our own sufficiency when we don't do business with God. So God will not excuse willful sin in the life of the child. He deals with it swiftly, surely, and solemnly. So Moses says our lives are sinful, our chastening is severe, and our time is short. Look at verses 9 through 11. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. This concept of the shortness of our time. Folks, the reality is these people at Kadesh Barnea might have taken comfort in saying that, well, I at least have 40 years but they didn't know that. Some of them would die that very day. It would take 40 years, so they didn't know the time was short. Moses is laboring that your next step could be your last one. You see, folks, every step those adults in Israel took was one step closer to eternity. Likewise, in each one of us is a built-in time fuse. One commentator said it this way, life on earth is a space in a space-time dimension is a one-way dead-end street. In other words, folks, if the Lord tarries, we will all die. But we forget that, and we live like we have forever. We make plans like we have forever, and the Bible challenges, to, challenges us to buy back the opportunity. How are you using the time that God has given you, and you don't know how long that is? One writer, Nate Saint, said this about using your time for God. And this is not to disparage lay people, but to challenge you about the will of God. Nate Saint said, quote, People who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries. 
They forget that they too are expending their lives, and when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. Life is short. So what is needed in light of the fact that our lives are sinful, God's chastening is severe, and our time is short? It's verses 1 through 4. We need a right perspective on God's sufficiency. We've got to have a a perspective of our insufficiency, but we must turn in faith to God's sufficiency. And so that's why Moses introduces the psalm that way. He talks about this right perspective of God's sufficiency and grace. First of all, he says that God is great in his power. Verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Now this word Lord that Moses uses here is not uh, the uh, word Jehovah. It is actually the, the word that would be Adonai. It is, it is God in his government that he's talking about. So he is saying that God in his government, who is sovereign in his relationship with the earth and in his relationship with people, that God who is sovereign in relationships has been our dwelling place in all generations. What a statement of faith. He is great in his power. He is great, secondly, in his eternality. Verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Unlike Moses and unlike you and me, God is not bound by time or space. He He is eternal. But the main point is, God is great in his sympathy. He is great in his power. He is great in his eternality. And if we looked at that, we could say, well, there's no room for me there. But Moses says, no, God is great in his sympathy. Because he says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. The Hebrew word translated dwelling place is a word that can best be illustrated by what many of us have in our homes. Uh, in, in, in our house, we have what we call a den, and we also have something called the living room. Now, there's a difference in those two rooms. The living room is the place where your daughter is being pursued by a young man, and the young man is going to come over to your house to talk with you. You put him in the living room because you don't want him to get comfortable at your house, Okay. <laughs> The living room has the, the stiff furniture, that, that old Queen Anne stuff that is hard as a rock. And you sit on it and you think, I've got to get off. You know, this is killing me. The, den is, uh, the, the living room is formal. It's hard. It's cold. It's sterile. One of our Baptist World missionaries uh, was having a young man pursuing his daughter. And so the young man who was at Bible college came over to the house and visited and and he came to ask the dad if he could have a serious relationship with the young lady. And so our missionary took out his 357 Magnum and he had it on the table and he was cleaning it all the time the young man was talking about a potential relationship. That's the living room, okay? But that's not the word that's used here. The Hebrew word here talks about the den. The cushy, comfortable chairs. The place where you crawl up and get comfortable. 
And folks, Moses is saying in the midst of all our sinfulness, in the midst of all the chastening of God, God is our dwelling place of warmth and comfort and love when we are willing to crawl up into his arms and let him put his arms around us. God has been our dwelling place. And you know, folks, as we face the desert sands, we need a place of security and love to crawl into. This passage, verse 3, talks about God knowing the tyranny that the tomb has over us. Look at verse 3. Thou turnest man to destruction. Folks, God in His sovereignty as Adonai has absolute power over life and death. And sometimes we don't understand it. I'll try, to, I'll try to get through this without too much emotion, but we have one of our dear couples in New Zealand today. This week is burying their grandson, Zeke, Garth and Lynette Piper. Little Zeke, an eight-year-old boy who knows the Lord Jesus, he's now in heaven, came down with a disease that took his life, and there was absolutely nothing they could do, and they had to watch their little beloved grandson go to what he looked like an Auschwitz victim. And then he passed away. And God in His sovereignty allows death and we don't understand it. It's it's what our brother spoke about in the last session. And we don't understand all that God is doing. And sometimes the desert sands hurt and grieve us. But folks, there is a place where you can go and you can crawl into the arms of God because He has been our dwelling place for all generations. And Garth and Lynette are having to crawl into the arms of God this week. Thou turnest man to destruction. But then the Bible commentators say in verse 3, There is hope because God saith, return ye children of men, a prophecy of the resurrection. Folks, what is going to make the difference for those grieving parents and grandparents in New Zealand is that this son that they plant in the ground, this grandson, will someday be raised because Jesus is alive. He'll come again. And so they crawl into the arms of God who is sufficient. God knows the tyranny that the tomb has over us. But He also knows the tyranny that time has over us. Look at verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. You know what's interesting to me? This was written about 30, probably 3,500 years ago, somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 years ago. According to conservative scholarship, probably the earth is somewhere six to 8,000 years old. There had only been three or 4,000 year periods of time when Moses wrote these. About as much before the writing of this as there has been after it, which is very interesting to me. But a thousand years. Folks, the United States of America is 247 years old this year, dating from the Declaration of Independence. A thousand years ago, William the Conqueror had not yet landed his Norman soldiers on the shores of England. But we think of that as ancient history. But to God, it's like a brief period of time, one of the watches in the night. Because God transcends all of that. Folks, He's a whole lot bigger than you are. And He transcends time. He knows the tyranny that time has over us, that we're prisoners of time, 
but he has engineered us, as we heard about in the DNA, for eternity. Amen. You know, Brother Jim, I, I went yesterday to lunch after your message, and I thought about having two hamburgers because I was eating for my DNA, but I knew that wasn't probably the right thing to do, so I only had one. <laughs> but our DNA is eternal. And what he said yesterday is, folks, we need to be living in light of eternity, though we are prisoners of time in the desert sands. And it's hard. So what is the conclusion of the matter? Look at verse 12 from the standpoint of this first point that we're making. Verse 12, Moses says, Lord, so teach us by understanding the perspective of our own insufficiency, but the perspective of your sufficiency, Lord, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Lord, teach us. And as we heard from the previous hour, we really don't understand so often. John Beekman was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute many years ago. And he was given a death sentence by his doctor. He had a serious heart condition, and they told him he would be very unlikely to live. But there was one chance. There was a new procedure. It was called a heart valve replacement. And scores had died from this procedure, but it was the only chance that John Beekman had. So as a believer in Christ, he decided simply to trust the Lord and listen to his doctors. And he had the tiny plastic valve put into his heart. He survived, and Moody Institute of Science, and many of you remember some of those films that they made, made a film of his life called Survivor Number 3. He was the third man to survive the ex ex experimental heart valve transplant. So what did John Beekman do? The doctor said, you need to take it easy. You need to sit back and enjoy the rest of the years that we have given you because of this heart valve replacement. John Beekman numbered his days and applied his heart to wisdom. He and his wife gave themselves to pioneer missionary work in the jungles of Mexico. He and his wife Elaine spent the rest of their days in steaming jungles and primitive conditions. He translated the Bible into the Chol language and he led a society of pagans into the light of Jesus Christ because he had numbered his days and applied his heart to wisdom. That is what Moses is talking about. So let's summarize this point. We're talking about going forward by faith. We need a right perspective. So what is Moses saying? He's saying our lives were sinful, but we've been redeemed. Amen. Our lives are short, but we do have time in the will of God. Amen. Thus, our lives are to be lived by, for Jesus Christ by faith, not depending on our insufficiency, but trusting his sufficiency, Amen. we go forward into the desert sands. You know, this has been a wonderful week, but some of you pastors are going back to some really difficult circumstances. Some of the lay people here are going back to very difficult circumstances. There are, there are families in this church that have issues in your family and in your life that you don't know how those will ever be resolved. Moses is saying, trust God's sufficiency. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. The Hebrew word acknowledge there in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is literally to know. In all your ways, know God, and He will direct your paths. So we go forward by faith into the desert sands. 
Then number two, we find to go forward by faith, we must have a renewed power. And that's verses 13 through 17. Because God does not require something of his children that he does not give them enablement for. God's grace is sufficient for his strength is made perfect in our weakness. God will not call you to do something that he does not give you grace and enablement for. We've heard those testimonies already. So to go forward by faith, we need a renewed power. Once we get our perspective right and know how we ought to live, we need the power for that living practically. And Moses prayed for four needs in his own life and in the lives of the people as they faced the desert sands. Number one, he prayed for a renewed willingness to be led by God. Folks, this is really critical for us, and it's really what we've been hearing all through the sessions. A renewed willingness on our part to be led by God. Folks, God wants to lead us, but we need a renewed willingness to forsake our own way and be led and empowered by God. You cannot separate the power of God from your willingness to be led by God. You can't separate those. So look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Now, this happened at Kadesh Barnea. But there are echoes, according to commentators, taking us from this verse back to that passage that Brother Wayne spoke on yesterday when there in Exodus 32 they made the golden calf and God came and said, Moses, I will send my angel before you, but I'll not go with you. And Moses basically said, God, will you not return and go with us? The same terminology used here. Moses basically said, God, if if you don't go, I don't want to go. I want you to go with me. By the way, in that passage in Exodus 33, I would challenge you to study it out. There was so much there that that Brother Wayne didn't have time to get to, even though that was a wonderful uh, treatise of that passage. But when Moses asked the questions, how will the people in the land that we're going to know that you're among us? He says, so shall we be separated unto the Lord. Did you know the hallmark of knowing that God is among a people is their separation unto Him? Folks, separation, as we heard again, I think Brother Jim said it, it's not from as much as it is to. And that is exactly what he is saying here. Lord, we need you. Lord, will you not return and lead us again? Lord, we we rejected you at Kadesh Barnea. Lord, we, we want to repent. And now, Lord, we have a renewed willingness to follow you. Will you lead us? And guess what God did? God said, yes, I will lead you. So Moses was praying for a renewed willingness to be led by God. Folks, we need a renewed willingness to follow the leadership of God in these days of uncertainty. We need to be through with trusting ourselves and only trusting Him. And prayer is the expression of willingness and dependence upon God. If you want to test how you know if someone is dependent upon God and willing to follow Him, you look at their prayer life. That's why Alan Redpath said this, We will only advance in our work as fast and as far as we advance on our knees. Prayer opens the channel between a soul and God. Prayerlessness closes that channel. Prayer releases the grip of Satan's power. Prayerlessness increases that grip. 
That is why prayer is so exhausting and so vital. If we believed in prayer, the prayer meeting would be as full as the Sunday morning church service. So a renewed willingness to be led by God reflected by our prayerfulness. Then number two, Moses prays for a renewed willingness to be led by God. He prays for a renewed focus on the mercy of God. Look at verses 14 and 15. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Moses is not denying the existence of the desert sands. He is saying, God, make us joyful in the face of the desert sands by our focusing on your mercies. So let me ask you a question. What are you focusing on in your daily life? The sands of Sinai, and by the way, that's Fox News, okay? The sands of Sinai or the mercies of God. You know, a number of years ago, I quit listening to talk radio because I found it was affecting my spirit before the Lord. And I, I, was, I was focusing on all the bad stuff and I was forgetting the mercies of God. You heard about the guy who uh, went to sleep one day in his house and his granddaughter decided that she wanted to play a trick on him and so she went back into the bedroom and she smeared Limburger cheese into his beard. And he woke up from his nap and he said, my, this bedroom stinks. And he walked out in the living room and said, oh, well, this living room stinks. He walked out on the front porch, why, the porch stinks. And he went out in the yard and he says, why, the whole world stinks. And folks, when we focus on the Limburger cheese of the bad news, the whole world stinks and God has failed and it's really bad. And, and you know, I, I see it in some of our staff members with Baptist World. I can tell when they've been watching too many news programs because what they want to talk about is all the latest news stuff instead of rejoicing in the mercies of God. It's interesting to me, Pastor, that Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is the passage which begins the practical section of a theological book, begins with a focus on the mercies of God. He says, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, uh, reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, be transformed the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He bases all of that on the mercies of God. So what are the mercies he's talking about? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's the first 11 chapters. You remember it's a theological book. Romans, the theme is righteousness. Chapters 1 through 3, sin and righteousness. Romans 1, folks, talk about the desert sands of the Gentile nations. We are there today. It's all about sin in verses chapters 1 through 3. And then chapters 4 and 5, it's about salvation and righteousness. Was not our father Abraham justified by faith when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness? And then chapters 6 through 8, sanctification and righteousness. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, even though in chapters 6 and 7 he talked about the flesh that Brother Jim talked about that wants to keep us in bondage. And then we come to chapters 9 through 11, which a friend of mine years ago said was an exposition on Calvinism. 
But I pointed out to him that Calvinism was not invented until 1,500 years after Paul wrote those words, so it can't be an exposition on Calvinism. So what is Romans 9 through 11? Paul is answering the dispensational question, what about the Jew and the gospel? And then he gets to chapter 12, the practical section, and he says, based on the mercies of God. Well, what are the mercies of God? We were sinners. We were Gentiles. We were lost. But God saved us. And he is doing a work of sanctification and it's by his grace. And he even moved the nations of the world and brought about this little nation Israel so that he could send our Savior. Oh, the mercies of God. What a theme for my song. And folks, if we focus on the desert sands, we will be depressed. But if we go forward focusing on the mercies of God, notice what he says, verse 14, Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercies that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Folks, think of the context of that. A hundred funerals every day that we may be glad all our days. A renewed focus on the mercy of God. And then thirdly, a renewed communication of the reality of God. Look at verse 16. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. Folks, the future of Israel lay with all of those under the age of 20. So Moses is praying that God's work will appear unto his servants in these next 40 years but also unto their children. And what he's really arguing for is we need to be leading our children into a first-generation Christian experience so that they will personally know the God of their fathers and thus live by faith. Amen. Folks, it is not enough for a young person to be raised at Falls Baptist Church and be a good kid. They must be born again. If they go through this ministry and even through the college and are never born again, they'll die and go to hell and their life will be lost. It'll be wasted, the ultimate meaning of destruction. And they'll be in hell forever. So he's appealing here that each generation needs a fresh biblical view of God. Now, not a, not a fresh unbiblical result of a vision in the night, Pentecostal New Revelation vision of God but a biblical vision of God that is fresh and new in every generation. A.B. Simpson, the great missionary pastor who penned the song to the regions beyond, wrote about that very thing relating to how God reveals himself biblically and motivates people by a fresh biblical vision in each generation. This is what he said. Every advanced step in our spiritual life must spring from a new view of God. It was the vision of God that sent Abraham forth on the, his new career of faith. And it was a new revelation of God that led him to further advances in the successive steps of his life of faith. It was the revelation of God to Jacob, first at Bethel and next at Peniel, that led to the great crisis of his life. It was a revelation of God that sent Moses forth to deliver Israel. It was a similar revelation that made Joshua the conqueror of Canaan. The vision of God brought healing and new life to Job and called Isaiah to his great prophetic mission. And it is such a vision of God that alone can meet the needs of our hearts and inspire our souls to a heavenly calling. It is God we all need to see, and it is God in his mighty character as El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. And it is that God that our children need to see. 
You know, if we go around moaning and groaning about the desert sands and how impotent our God is, don't be surprised when our children walk away from biblical fundamentalism. But if we believe God and, and we walk it and we demonstrate it by His grace and they see all of our foibles still, but they know that God is our sufficiency and He's made a difference in our life and He's changed us, then if they'll look to God for a fresh biblical vision, God can radically change the next generation. And we saw them up here this morning singing. We need to be leading our children into a first-generation Christian experience. And then number four, we need to have a renewed testimony to the holiness of God. And with this we close, verse 17. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. There is debate about what this phrase, the beauty of holiness, means, but most conservative scholars agree uh, about the beauty of the Lord that it's talking about holiness. So Moses is praying that the holiness of God would be upon the people and upon their families. He's praying for a renewed testimony to the holiness of God. Now, where did Moses get that? I would like to take you back in your mind's eye this morning to two things, one that you know about, one that you don't, to illustrate this. I would like for us to go to the ghetto in Egypt where there is in a hut a couple named Amram and Jochebed. Folks, we often do not understand the suffering of the Jewish people in Egypt and what it meant for them to be enslaved in the way they were. You know, if you've read much about World War II, we, we think about the Polish ghettos uh, that the Nazis put the Jews into and how horrible those were. those were. Those were far nicer, I am confident, than what happened in Egypt. So in this ghetto, in this slum, in the filth and the vileness of Egypt, though the Jews had a measure of cleanliness that they endeavored apparently to maintain, there was one couple in particular, Amram and Jochebed. And when we go into their hut today, it is like going into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, because the glory of God is in that hut, because they walk with God. And Moses, who was put in a basket and he came back and was nursed by his mother and apparently made sometime occasional trips back to the hut of Amram and Jochebed, raised in the house of Pharaoh's daughter, when it came time to make a decision, he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sinful Egypt. Why? Because he had seen the beauty of holiness in a hut in the ghetto of Egypt. And it produced a Moses, an Aaron, and a Miriam. Moses' life had been touched by God by his parents who had the beauty of holiness upon them. And as Moses reflected on that, he considers that the testimony of God has been damaged by the unbelief at Kadesh Barnea. And he was praying that the present generation would get back the beauty of holiness so that the children could see it, so that God's testimony could be perpetuated. May the beauty of God's holiness be upon us. I want to close with a personal illustration. I didn't ask permission. Some people say don't do it, but since I'm speaking, I will. I was not raised in a Christian home, per se. I did not go to a fundamental Baptist church. Uh, my parents were 
good Southern Baptist in the South who didn't go to church, they didn't read their Bible, they didn't pray, but they would have told you they were saved because they'd prayed a prayer one time somewhere in the past. We did not have Christ in our home at all. So I grew up on Sunday mornings. Most of my Sunday mornings was my dad taking me down to my mamaw's house. She hosted the area illegal rooster fights where there was lots of gambling and lots of wickedness going on. That was my Sunday morning experience. When I was 10 years old, a man came by our house with a station wagon, which is for the young people here, that's a precursor to a church bus. And invited me to vacation Bible school at Solomon's Temple Baptist Church in Blairs Gap, Tennessee. I went, I heard the gospel, I was wonderfully saved. I didn't have any encouragement at home. My family was not righteous. And it took me three years to find out I was supposed to go to church. I got into church, I started reading my Bible when I was 15. God called me to, to preach through my personal devotions. I had a full scholarship to a Southern Baptist college. I found out from reading my Bible that I was a fundamentalist. I rejected that, and uh, that's a whole other story. But the point of the beauty of holiness, my, my dad was the grandson of Nathan Lafayette Stedman. Now, my real name is not Bud Stedman. It's Nathan Lafayette Stedman. You say, well, I understand why they called you Bud after that. But my great-grandfather was a godly man. His son, Ed Stedman, was a rebel, and he rebelled against the faith of his father and became what might have been called in the day a reprobate, married an unsaved woman and raised a bunch of unsaved kids. My dad was the oldest. Now, eventually, both of my grandparents did make a profession of faith later in life, but, but my dad grew up without God. His brothers grew up without God, and his brothers... My, my dad was, was never a criminal, per se, but his brothers were big-time criminals. All of my uncles uh, spent time in federal penitentiary for multiple armed robberies, attempted murders. You, I mean, it's, it's about as bad. If, if you know anything about uh, uh, Whiskey Row in Tennessee and White Lightning, they were involved in all of that. And they were wicked people. That's why Dad would take us on Sunday morning to rooster fights. My uncles were involved in all of that. And so in East Tennessee, the Stedman name, which once had been a name for the glory of Jesus Christ, had become identified with criminal activity. If you were a Stedman, that's what you were known as in our area. So God saved me and changed me and took me to Bible college. I met my wonderful wife whose father was best friends with Wayne's dad and out west. And she was raised in a wonderful Christian home. And we got married and we went out and served the Lord. And God gave us three wonderful children. And fast forwarding a few years, my son Nathan took a wonderful bride named Janelle. And I had the privilege of standing before Nathan and Janelle at their wedding. And I challenged him. That the name of Stedman, because of sin, had brought reproach and dishonor to God. But at his marriage altar, if he would determine that he would follow God and, and raise up a godly seed, they could change the name to a name of the beauty of holiness, if they would only follow God. By God's grace, Nathan has done that. He has three little boys. They're Stedmans. And they're being raised for Jesus Christ. Amen. And folks, my goal, my prayer is that God will keep Bud Stedman faithful 
in the desert sands. And he'll keep Nathan Stedman faithful in the desert sands. And he'll keep Elijah and Ethan and Micah faithful as they get saved and follow Christ in the desert sands. So the beauty of holiness can again rest on the Stedman family name. Folks, we have an opportunity to go forward in the midst of a perverse world and bear the beauty of His holiness. But it won't happen if we trust our own sufficiency. We will be shipwrecked. So what do we do? We recognize our lives are sinful, but we've been redeemed. Our lives are short, but we have time. So we go forward by grace through faith to follow Christ and to live for Him. We don't know how many days we have, but may they be filled with a renewed willingness to follow God, a renewed prayerful dependence upon God, and teaching our children and grandchildren and the beauty of holiness resting upon our families. That is God's desire as we go back to face the desert sands.